G'day everyone. Uh, who from um, Port Christian students were with us last year uh, on the church crawl? Anyone? One, two? It's a little bit of a silhouette. Well, I'm going to finish this sermon. That's my pledge, all right? Um, for those of you who don't understand that, I'm a celiac and I got poisoned at lunchtime last year. And I said there are three points in the application of the sermon. I gave the first and then I gave the second and third into the garden outside. So um, that's, that's my first little uh, uh, apology, kind of, from last year. Second thing to say is there's some hard work today. Uh, this is a passage that continues uh, from chapter 24. And I remember, um, Rob, I think it was you saying, why does Jesus... Uh, who makes so many things really clear and obvious, say things that are so kind of uh, mysterious and difficult to understand. And it's true. Uh, it's a good question. Why does he? Uh, today, we're going to be grappling with the same sorts of issues that we were a couple of weeks back. Uh, but if you're with us for the first time, or if you're not familiar with the teaching of Jesus, if you're kind of getting into the Bible and you're wondering what you'll find there, it's not all like this, okay? Most of it is really readable off the page. And if we're prepared to work just a little bit harder with this, I think there'll be great things that we'll discover about Jesus. So how about we pray? Uh, pray for uh, wisdom uh, as we look at this together, that God will be uh, encouraging us, strengthening our faith in Jesus and helping us to trust him in all things. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that you've reached out to us and made yourself known. Uh, we thank you for uh, your scriptures, uh, for Matthew, and even for this teaching in Matthew 24 and 25 that is difficult for us to understand. We, we ask for uh, the help of your Holy Spirit to grasp what uh, you're teaching us here today, uh, not just for our understanding, but so that we might trust you and live out our relationship with you in all things. Amen. Well, I'm going to recap a little bit, first of all, from Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, I was talking about the benefit and the importance of reading like a reader. So if you open a novel, uh, you're introduced to a whole range of different things that are happening. Uh, you don't know why those things are happening just yet, so you read on. And often, the things that are set up early on get resolved. Uh, those people who have to know everything in advance uh, are notoriously annoying when it comes to watching movies. Why is that person there? Why is he doing that? Where did that come from? Well, watch it and you'll discover. And we realise that as we've been reading through Matthew's Gospel, there are themes that are building. Uh, one of the big themes from the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel was that Jesus has come to fulfill the promises of God. In fact, we are told that again and again and again over the early chapters, and we need to keep that in mind right through to the end of Matthew's Gospel. One of the purposes of Matthew is to show that Jesus fulfills the promises of God. But there's more to it than that. And when we looked a fortnight ago at Matthew chapter 24, there's this quirky verse in the middle. Uh, it's chapter 24 and verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And then he goes on. Two clues there. That is, there's some insight here for the reader. I take it the, the reader of 
Matthew and maybe the reader of Daniel. And we are to understand that as Jesus teaches this, there's something in Daniel that will help us to understand what he's teaching about. Um, let me remind you of some of the key passages that were in Daniel. Uh, this one here, for example, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now, without going into too much detail about that, a couple of things stand out. It's a horrific thing that's happening. Secondly, it's involved with the abolition of sacrifices in the temple. And when we looked at chapter 24, a fortnight ago, one of the key things that we discover is that the disciples are wondering what sign to look for, and here is the sign when they see this. What is it? Well, we're not told exactly. There's a couple of other references to Daniel in the passage. Uh, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects the people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. Now, this language also gets picked up in Matthew 24. Jesus is saying something is going to happen that is so catastrophic, there's never been anything like it since the beginning of the world. And it is so distressing, there will never be anything like it afterwards. So we've got to be asking questions. What is like that? What is the most extremely distressing thing? And then in Daniel 12, immediately after that, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so Daniel introduces us to a great distress that will be followed by a resurrection. And then the last reference that uh, Jesus picks up from Daniel is this one. And in many ways, he's been referring to this again and again and again and again right through this gospel. It says here, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, one of the key things that we talked about when we looked at this is to consider carefully the direction where the Son of Man is coming. See, if we think of ourselves as being at the centre of the universe and we hear that the Son of Man is coming, then surely he's coming to us. But when you look at this, in Daniel's vision, the Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven and he approaches the Ancient of Days, who is God himself, and is led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus uses this little phrase, son of man, to speak of himself. And for the reader who understands, that is someone who's got Daniel in mind, they're thinking, wow, there's going to be a powerful ruler come to God and give an authority to rule over everyone for all time. And what do we discover? Well, Jesus talking about the coming of the Son of Man. So if you put these ideas together, just in a, a, a natural kind of flow, what you see happening here, I think, is Jesus preparing his disciples. There's going to be this abomination that causes desolation. Something horrific is going to happen in the temple. There is going to be a catastrophic event and it will be associated with the greatest distress that the world has ever known. 
after which there'll be resurrection, after which the Son of Man will come to God and rule. And so I argued the case in chapter 24 that it makes sense to see this as Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, not the physical temple, which is what his disciples were asking about, but the destruction of his own body, which is associated with the destruction of the physical temple. Remember when he dies, the curtain is split from top to bottom and the abolition of the sacrifices. Jesus, the one true sacrifice, abolishes the whole sacrificial system. Not only that, but God sends his son and God's people kill the son. What greater distress has there ever been in the history of the world and will ever be again, but to kill the son of God. Not only that, but after that distress, on the third day, Easter Sunday, the son is raised to life. Fast forward 40 days and he ascends to heaven, comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days and rules over all. Now, I think what we've got here is pretty familiar to us in lots of ways. We're going to be looking today at, at uh, the story about the widows, probably familiar with that, the, the talents. And uh, that's been a confusing thing for English readers because the word literally means like a, a weight, an, an ingot of gold would be a better way of translating it. And my NIV says here, bags of gold. But we're familiar with the parable of the talents or the gold. And then sheep and the goats, well, that's become proverbial in our society, you know, the separation of the sheep from the goats. That's very well known. And the danger is that we feel familiar with this and we, we kind of think we know what it means. And my guess is we think that it's about the second coming of Jesus. And we need to go back and ask the question, what was Jesus saying of importance to his disciples? And so what continuity is there? See, back at chapter 24 and verses 1 to 3, this is what sets this whole uh, discourse up. He leaves the temple, he's walking away. The disciples call his attention to the buildings of the temple. Do you see these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. But in John, when he talks about the destruction of the temple, he makes it clear he's talking about his body and the two are tied up together. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So that's the question that's being addressed. And it's one long discourse. So when you get to chapter 26 and verse 1, you read, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples. So chapter 24 and chapter 25, they go together. So what I want to do is give you a little bit of an overview of chapter 25 and then to dig back into it again. Um, so, first of all, there's a parable, and it's the parable of the bridegroom and the virgins. And uh, I need to put these on because I can't see what I've written. Um, the parable of the bridegroom and the virgins is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Notice that in verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So, that's the framing for the parable. He's going to be talking about the kingdom of heaven. 
And there's going to be analogy here. It's a parable to this story about the bridegroom being away and coming and 10 virgins, five of them of whom are prepared because they've got their lamps and they've got oil to refill their lamps. Five of them are unprepared because they have no extra oil. And what we discover is that they're not going to be transferring. You can't transfer uh, this from one to another. You need to be prepared yourself. And if you're not prepared, look what happens. Those who are unprepared, the door is shut to them. And Jesus says to them, truly I tell you, I do not know you. So it, it's quite a simple parable in, in a sense. There are those who are ready for the, the coming of the bridegroom and there are those who are not ready and they can't transfer the benefits from one to another. There will be a time of separation. The door will be shut. Those who are in will enjoy the banquet with the groom. Those who are shut out will miss out on all that is offered. And then look at the application, verse 13. And here again, we see continuity. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, that's in keeping with what we've already seen. I'll come back to that uh, in a little bit. So what do we make of the next parable? Well, it's a little bit longer, but there are some similarities. You've got here a situation where uh, the, the master is going on a journey. So he's away and he's coming back and you need to be prepared for when he comes back. They don't know when that's going to take place. It's a long time. Uh, in verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned. Now, he has given them generously um, bags of gold, literally bags of talents. And if you look at your footnotes there, it'll say that one talent was worth approximately 20 years of a day laborer's wage. So pretty generous here. He's, he's given um, in... Uh, in I guess in whatever kind of monetary value we put to it, he's given some 100 years worth of wages in money to do something with. Uh, others, 40 years. Others, 20 years. Right? The expectation is they're going to do something with it. The, the master is wanting a return on his wealth. And we see as we read on that two of them uh, create a return. In fact, it's a pretty significant return. It's a 100% return on the master's wealth. But the other has a zero return. He doesn't gain anything. And there's an interchange about how he feels about the master and so on. So again, you've got separation. Those who uh, gain the 100% return, they are considered to be good and faithful servants. You read that refrain a number of times. Um, Jesus says to them, or, or the, the master in this story says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we, I think, tend to think of this, uh, our familiarity is to think of this as the second coming. Um, and there's certainly a point of judgment that's on view uh, because the picture of being shut out when the door is closed to the wedding gets more deeply serious as you progress. So in verse 30, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, whatever we make of the timing and specific circumstances of this parable, 
Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of heaven, it's continuing the same theme, again it will be like, it says in verse 14, the kingdom of heaven will involve separation. There'll be those who are faithful and produce a return and they will be welcomed in and given more. There'll be those who produce nothing and they will be cast out into the darkness where there will be deep distress, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, it's certainly a picture of judgment. Then thirdly, uh, we get another picture. Well, this one's kind of, it's kind of a parable, but it's of a different kind of parable. It's, it's kind of almost reality and parable tied in together. Um, the coming of the Son of Man and the sheep and the goats. Again, it's associated with the kingdom of heaven. So verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and uh, down in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. So it's another parable about the kingdom. Right? But there's a reality about this that's on view because the son of man isn't a parable. The son of man is real. The son of man will come in his glory and the angels with him and he will sit on his glorious throne. And again, if we're to read this in keeping with what's come before, here's a picture of the Son of Man coming in his glory to God. He's given authority to rule. And then the angels are with him and he sits on his throne. And then you can read in all that follows about the judgment that is about to be worked out. It's a judgment between the sheep and the goats. Now, I always thought this was a, a, a really obvious thing, the sheep and the goats. Because I grew up in Tasmania and we had sheep at the back of our house. We had a big backyard. And they were called Merino and they were big and they were fluffy. My friend had goats. They were scrawny and had horns. They looked very different, completely different animals. But you Google sometime Middle Eastern sheep and goats and you find it's pretty hard, in fact, to pick the difference sometimes. They look very much alike. The point I think here is that there is one who can see the difference that maybe you and I can't see, and that is the Son of Man. The Son of Man will not only come to rule, but he will come to judge. He will be there before all nations, before the angels, and there will be a separation like separating sheep from goats. And then you run with the kind of imagery of the sheep and the goats. It's a separation, it's a dividing into two, um, and the picture here shows what the judgment will be about. Um, in summary, the judgment will be about how people treated Jesus. Did they recognise Jesus and treat him well? Or did they not recognise Jesus, ignore him and do nothing for him? Now, it's worked out in terms of them not knowing that they were doing things for Jesus. They were showing hospitality, they were visiting the sick or the needy, they were providing clothes and food, um, they were visiting people in prison or whatever the different things that they were doing. But Jesus says to them, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So. How we treat Jesus, or how they treat Jesus, 
is being worked out by how they treat Jesus' brothers and sisters. Because how they treat Jesus' brothers and sisters, who are his ambassadors, is how they treat Jesus. That's a big thing to be saying. That at, at the end of things, when there's a judgment overall, people will be divided into two groups based on how they treat Jesus. And think who it is is saying this. Um, a man. A man who is headed for his execution. And the disciples need to know that. Now, <clears throat> what do we make of this? That's a fairly quick um, overview. But without overlooking the obvious here, there are some insights into the kingdom. Um, first of all, insights into the king. Um, the, the son of man comes uh, as the king into God's kingdom to rule. Uh, it will be an eternal kingdom of those who are righteous. Jesus Christ, you see, will be God's anointed king. And so Jesus becomes the hinge point of all history. Now, we still have this remarkable situation in a world which by and large wants nothing to do with God of having the modern calendar hinge at the point of Jesus. We have BC and AD, although these days it's kind of politically correct to say BCE before the common era and, and after the common era, but it's BC and AD, AD being in the year of the Lord. But it's not just the calendar that's going on here. It's saying God had made promises and those promises have been kept. The Son of Man has been installed as the king in God's kingdom. And as the king in God's kingdom, he's going to bring about salvation and he's going to bring about judgment. We discover here that judgment is very real. Um, it's not a popular thing to talk about. Uh, Fiona was telling me to, today to have a look at an article about fundamentalism in the Sydney Morning Herald yesterday. I haven't read it yet. But I would say that anybody who speaks about judgment is going to be labelled a fundamentalist. Um, why would you speak about such a thing? It's, it's, it's so bigoted. It, it, it's so non-caring. It, it, it's so separatist and so on. Well, Jesus did. That's why. Jesus talked about judgment more than anyone else in the New Testament. Jesus spoke about the judgment that God had predicted in the Old Testament and has now come with Jesus. In fact, Jesus uses some pretty graphic language. Uh, take it back to last week, verse 51, chapter 24. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a nice picture. Being cast out into the darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, everlasting, eternal punishment. There's nothing nice about what Jesus says about judgment. Nothing nice at all, because it's not nice. And Jesus is speaking about it because Jesus tells the truth and he tells the truth in love. And to deny the fact that there's going to be a judgment would be to defraud the people of a reality that they will face. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, just as it's appointed for people to die once and after that to face judgment. Two things you can count on. 
Death, everyone in their right mind would agree that that's coming. But judgment, death is not the end. There will be judgment. Jesus talks about it. Why did he say so much? Well, if you're new to the east coast of Australia, you'll probably, or perhaps even worse actually, in some parts of the west coast or down south, you will do very well to heed a warning on a beach that has a picture of a shark with big teeth. Stay out of the water. There are great whites in this area. There was a tiger shark seen yesterday. There are bull sharks in this canal. Heed the warning. I mean, what do you say about a sign like that? Misery guts. This one who ruined my swim. No, they want to keep you alive. We've spent some time in the north of Australia. Aktung, picture of a crocodile. I don't know what Aktung means, but I do know what a crocodile does. Stay away from it. Irukandji, jellyfish, stay away from them. Brown snakes, stay away from them. We've got lots of things to stay away from in Australia. We tell people about them so that they don't get bitten, so that they don't die. Why does Jesus tell people about judgment? Because he doesn't want people to go there. And judgment and salvation are the two equal and opposite sides here. Well, I shouldn't say equal. That they're opposite sides. The picture of salvation, it comes through these stories, doesn't it? The wedding banquet. Joy with the wedding uh, feast. Joy with the banquet. Joy with the groom. A picture here of the bridegroom. It's the second time it's come up in Matthew's Gospel. You see it again in other parts of the Bible. Uh, the picture here also of, of coming and sharing in the Master's happiness. His joy. You see a picture here of people being blessed and, and people living in eternal life in chapter 25 and verse 46. So the insights, the obvious, there's a king. And the king is going to bring about judgment. But he wants people to enjoy salvation. So don't be unprepared. Again and again, Jesus says, keep watch. Be ready. But don't look for signs of the times, he's told us in chapter 24. Instead, look to the coming of the Son of Man. Pay attention to his death, to his resurrection, to his rule. Now, how might you think about this from different perspectives? How might Jesus be preparing his disciples for what they are about to face? Well, firstly, they need to see it as fulfillment. See, we can quickly forget that God had promised that the Son of Man would come and be given authority to rule eternally. Don't forget that. That's big time. And it's happening. It's, it's on the horizon, Jesus is saying. He is the one that was promised. He's the Daniel 7 king. But before they see all of that, there's going to be the greatest distress from the beginning of creation and never to be greater again. And then there'll be resurrection. And then he will send out his angels, his messengers. And then he will gather them in and judge them. You see, the disciples need to not be thrown by the fact that Jesus is about to die. Because the one who's about to die 
He will still be the king who rules eternally. They need to grasp that. There's an immediate application for the disciples. Jesus says to watch and to stick with him. And spoiler alert here for next week, chapter 26 and verse 31, Jesus said to them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. He's saying, watch, be prepared. No one knows the day, no one knows the hour and they will fall away. But the great news is that Jesus' grace will still be expressed to them, even though they do. So I think there's immediate benefit there for the disciples. And that's an important question for us to ask as Bible readers. Because if Jesus is just saying something that's only going to be relevant in 2,000 years' time, you think, with all the intensity of what's happening leading up to the cross, why is he doing this? And how's it going to help them? And how does it answer the questions that they asked? Secondly, though, this has been put in Scripture. So it's a good question to ask. How is Matthew, who puts the gospel together, preparing his readers, the first Christians, the early Christians, for what they will face? Well, they need to look backwards and they need to be reminded of who Jesus was. That is, he was the one who fulfilled all of those promises that God had made again and again and again, right through the Gospels, you read it. And the big promise of the coming of the Son of Man. Don't forget that. And once you realise that, you realise the first question was kind of misguided. It's not who Jesus was. It's who Jesus is. He's not dead. And that applied to the disciples as they are fearful in the upper room. It applies to the disciples right through the book of Acts. It, it applies to disciples right through the history of the church. We need to remember that Jesus has come as the son of man, that he's died, that, he will be, that he's been raised and that he is now ruling on high. And if you look at the details in all of this, you know there's a lot of sadness. You know, there's a lot of tough times to come. You know, there's troubles and distress and all sorts of things. So be aware that the kingdom of heaven is not all plain sailing. There, there will be difficult things. They will be treated badly. The, the first disciples, you can read about it in Acts. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians. They, they need to stay alert. They, they need to be looking after one another. They need to be caring for the widows and the orphans. They need to be reaching out to those who are in prison and boy, did Paul depend upon that later when he was left on his own in prison. And you read the sad news in 2 Timothy. He says, everyone deserted me just as they had Jesus. So there's a looking back. But friends, there's also a looking forward. How is the Holy Spirit preparing us for what we will face? Well, I think this is the most fundamental thing, first of all. Do you know Jesus? Not just do you know about Jesus, but do you know him? Are you in a relationship with Jesus? And the Jesus that you claim to be in relationship with, how big is he? Is he your best pal? Is he someone who will help you out when times are difficult? Is he someone you might go to for advice? Well, that's great. But friends, 
Don't belittle Jesus. He's the son of man who comes to the ancient of days and is given authority for all time to rule over all nations. And one day, everyone will give an account to Jesus. How big is your Jesus? And we need to understand the kingdom. See, Jesus is preaching about the kingdom. He's always been preaching about the kingdom. Go back to Matthew 13, the parable of the soils and the mustard seed and, and the tree and so on. There's great parables of the kingdom because Jesus, that's what he's on about, bringing in the kingdom. And it's the kingdom that he's going to die to bring about. It's the kingdom that he'll be raised to be the king in. And so we need to understand the kingdom that the implications of understanding the kingdom is that the gospel, that is the good news of the kingdom, needs to be preached into the whole world. It's good news for all people who come to Jesus. Are we living for the kingdom? Are we letting our world and, and our world locally around and about us, are we letting people know that Jesus is the king? How easily do you find yourself saying the name Jesus? See, it's one thing to talk about being spiritual. It's another thing to talk about God. It's another thing to talk about pathways and enlightenment and so on. But start talking about Jesus. It's incredible the response that you'll get. Sometimes it's intensely hostile. But sometimes that's exactly what people need to hear. I'll tell you a little story that's happening at the moment. I don't know much about it, but we get a call from Marcus, our youngest, who's in Indonesia. Um, he says, a guy comes up to him and says, would you tell me about Jesus? He's only been in Indonesia for three or four weeks. Someone's come up and they want to know about Jesus. And Marcus said, well, now's probably not the right time. So there was another occasion, he came up and said, now the right time to talk about Jesus? Well, probably not now. I don't know all the details of that. It might be to do with security. It might be to do with just taking the time and having private place. And then he's asked again, and they've been able to have a conversation about Jesus. People do want to know about Jesus. Talk to John and Betty sometime if, if you want to know of, of whole communities of people who wanted to know about Jesus. People still want to know about Jesus because Jesus brings life. The kingdom. But I take it this part of Matthew's gospel is also Jesus warning us, the Holy Spirit preparing us to be prepared. Not by reading signs of the times, but by knowing Jesus and living faithful and fruitful lives. Faithful and fruitful lives. Now, you might be thinking, I thought this passage was all about the second coming. Mac, are you saying it's not all about the second coming? Yes, I am saying I don't think it's all about the second coming. Are you saying it's not about the second coming? No, I'm not saying that. So what are you saying, Macca? Um, clearly, the New Testament teaches the second coming. Actually, it doesn't ever use the term the second coming. But it does talk about another coming of Jesus, which is yet future. Very clearly. And even if it's not here in Matthew 24, 25, it's definitely there in the Bible. Um, and it might perhaps be not 
clearly and evidently in every reference that we thought was, but is in some of these references somehow. So what do we make of this? I think Daniel 7 is the clue. Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. What is the Old Testament pointing to? What is it that Jesus fulfills? What is the climax? It's Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension to be at the right hand of God, ruling on high, that brings in the end of the age. The day of the Lord has come. We are now living in that end time, in that age of the kingdom, in that last days period. But I think the key is that the language here in the Gospels of the Son of Man coming is quite precisely coming to God. By contrast, the New Testament speaks in other parts after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to the coming, not of the Son of Man, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he become the Lord Jesus, the Christ? By being the Son of Man, he comes to the Ancient of Days and then comes back as the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's the key. So let, let me just show you a couple of um, models of how people read the Bible. Here's, here's a picture, I, I think, of what they were expecting in the Old Testament. The Bible talks about the coming of the Messiah, the outpouring of the Spirit, the general resurrection of the dead, the day of the Lord. And the expectation was, it'll come, it'll happen, and that'll be it. But the way it comes is different. I think it comes like this. That is, there's the first coming of Christ, the outpouring of the Spirit, the resurrection of Christ, which brings in, yellow line, the age of the Spirit. It's preparing us to live while we await the final or the second coming of Christ and the general resurrection of the dead when all people will be raised to give an account. Does Jesus have to do anything more? No. He's done it all with the first coming. He's now Lord and Christ, King in God's kingdom. When he comes back, that will be demonstrated to all. I think that's the picture. Now, I'll, I'll show you how this theology works. Here's some examples. Um, in Romans 5, <clears throat> it talks about the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship already, past tense. But a few verses later, we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship. Not yet, future. Is it one or is it the other? Yes, it's both and. Um, you see the same thing with the idea of redemption. Ephesians 1, we have redemption through his blood, past tense. But you were sealed for the day of redemption, future tense. See? Or uh, oh, another one. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, past, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, future. I'll just give you a couple more. For it is by grace you have been saved. If you're Christian, 
you have been saved, but Romans 5 puts it in future terms. Since you've been justified, how much more then shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So there's still that future salvation to come. Or even the language of resurrection, God has raised us up with Christ, but the dead will be raised imperishable. Now, you didn't know you were getting a whole lecture on eschatology tonight, did you? Um, it's just for those uni students. Um, but there's the picture, I think. Yes, but more to come. Now, I want to give you, uh, I want to finish with this. I want to give you a little bit of a taster. Um, first of all, to say we've decided to delay the Bible in 10 to third term, partly because I will miss at least four of the Sundays. Um, but also to give a bit of time for the kids' ministry to get ready for the Bible in 10. We're going to do 1 and 2 Thessalonians in the meantime. I want to show you something from 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, they wait for his son from heaven, that is the coming of his son, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who will rescue us from the coming wrath. That's in chapter 1. Chapter 2, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? future tense. Chapter 3, may he strengthen your hearts so that you may be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. We're looking forward to that. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. Chapter 4. Chapter 5, about times and dates we do not need to write to you for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So the, the language of Jesus is being picked up by Paul, but it's applied not to the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming back to us. And then in 2 Thessalonians, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Chapter 2, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled. And there's not a reference in chapter 3. But out of the eight chapters that we're going to be looking at, seven of them are anchored in our convictions about the return of Jesus Christ to us. Why is it a big deal that the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to us? Well, it's because of who he is. He is that son of man who came to the ancient of days and was made Lord over all and will bring about the end of all things. And we're just waiting for that to happen, living in the light of that day.